Welcome to the Human and Technology Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who develops, distributes or uses technology. For all those who always have the feeling that technology overwhelms or dominates them. For everyone who wants to know how to deal with technology in everyday life. For anyone who wants to understand what technology does to us and how we can get our lives back. This podcast is for those who want to make technology sexy. All the product developers, designers, UX, UI professionals, product managers, CTOs and CEOs. And it is for you. My name is Dr. Peter Reska. My friends call me Dr. Peter. I am your host and I am happy that you are here. I need to start this episode of the Human Technology Podcast with a disclaimer. I will be talking about the brain, the human brain in this uh, episode. And I'm doing this more from the user's point of view, let's, let's put it that way. I am not a medical doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a neurologist. So my interest in uh, the human brain arose when dealing with human-machine systems, with human-machine interfaces, when thinking about the relationship between humans and technology. So topics as perception, cognition, information processing, emotions, those were and are in the focus when I think and talk about the human brain. And I learned a lot about this while studying psychology. I spent a few few semesters, a few years uh, at university in psychology, and uh, the I learned a lot about the structure of the brain. How how does it work? How are the neurons uh, interrelated? How do they work together? And that was called physiological psychology. That was the topic um, that that I was very much into while studying it. And I have always understood psychology as the sign of the healthy human. Not as a basis for therapies, for therapists, not as some kind of repair shop. But for me, it was always important to have a view on the healthy human, on people behaving, working the way it should be. And this topic was discussed a lot uh, under the the statement of the crisis of psychology. The idea behind this was um, that that humans are pushed to the end of their strength, to the end of their their abilities, to the end of what they can can stand and what they can work on by business, by industry, by society. And that very often ended up in in burnout. And psychologists then repair the mind, repair the brain, and with that make humans available again for the exploitation by capitalism. That was the idea at that time and that that resonated with me. And so my approach was always and still is 
I want to improve living and working conditions in a way that burnout, that the attacks on the mind and the soul and the brain of people, that they do not occur anymore. My idea is to create an optimal environment that support um, that supports humans and, and their life, that, that make it possible for them to lead the best possible life, and the, the, the life in, in the best possible way. And I'm, I'm focusing on, on technology, on the relationship between humans and technology, and then humans and mobility, and humans and, and vehicles, cars and drivers. This, this is what I'm focusing on, and I try to optimize based on what I know about the, how the human brain works, uh, I, I optimize the technology, the environment, the way we, we use technology, so that we get the best possible life for all humans. So not fiddling around with the symptoms, not trying to repair something that is broken, not by trying to bring humans back into life that were in an environment that was not fitting them, based on technology in my case. But going down to the roots and really say, okay, we can change technology, we can adapt technology to the abilities of the human brain, change it, and this way create a better life for humans. And 30, 35 years ago, when I was at university, I was violently attacked for this attitude. But um, until today, I, I still think this is the right way to go. Okay, let's have a quick look uh, into history. So life has existed for the past four billion years on this uh, globe. I mean, that's the general theory. There are also other views on this one, mostly based on religious beliefs um, that assume that uh, life exists since, I don't know, 3,000 years, 6,000 years or 10,000 years. But I follow the overwhelming scientific majority. So life is on Earth since about 4 billion years. And we do not exactly know how it came to this planet. So maybe there was a puddle, um, a little mud, and then there was a lighting that jumped into it, and there were a couple of organic uh, um, uh, molecules in there, and suddenly there was life, something like this. I, I don't believe we will ever know how it really happened. But that happened four billion years ago and that was the origin of all life we see today and so for two 2.5 billion years we had unicellular life only we had single cells usually swimming in liquids probably in water and then something something crazy happened these cells started to build clusters they move together to protect themselves against other cells, to not be destroyed or eaten by them or attacked by them. So had to have a better, better defense position. And the next step then was that uh, in these cell clusters, 
some cells took over specialized functions. They, so some of these cells specialized in doing something specific. And this created life, living beings as we know them today. And the fascinating thing is, everyone, you and I, your pad, your, the plants in your house, we all have an unbroken ancestry back to this puddle on a storm-tossed planet with rocks on it, without no, any life on it. I mean, we all have this history down to that particular, that one particular point in time when life started to exist. And this is a moment when I usually make a little break, take a deep breath, and I'm grateful for, and I'm fascinated by the dimensions of all that. So let's make a big jump ahead in history. So the, f the first human-like animals lived in uh, Eastern Africa about 2.5 million years ago. These uh, prehistoric humans uh, made their way from Eastern Africa towards Asia and Europe. And as a result of this, new human species emerged. Like, for example, the Homo neanderthalensis, the Neanderthals. So they were one, let's call it breed or kind or species of humans. And we had others there. There were different ones. And they were varying a lot. They were varying significantly. Some were more small and lightweight. Others were stronger and more muscular and, and, and bigger and taller. So... Yeah, we had all these different kinds of, of humans on the world. And among those, the Homo erectus, the upright human, was particularly successful. And nobody at that time would have had the idea that the um, follow-ups of the, the follow-up kinds of humans out of this Homo erectus would rule the world. Yeah, because then, much later than all the other uh, human species um, that I mentioned, the Homo sapiens entered the world stage. That was around 150 years ago. And this being, this, this uh, mammal, without any ability to defend, we, we do not have claws, we do not have uh, big teeth, we do not have... Uh, any kind of, of protective shields around us. Yeah, but when that one, when that breed showed up, that changed everything. So it began its migration out of Africa into Asia and Europe about 70,000 years ago. And that was the beginning of the end for Homo erectus and Neanderthalensis and all the other kinds of humans we had. How exactly that happened, whether it was like a mix-up or whether the other breeds were just uh, uh, pushed away, we, we don't know. 
um, that they're still subject of the scientific research and the scientific debates. Probably it's some something in between. Um, the, the, the truth is very often in the middle between the extremes. So there were different mechanisms going on um, why the Homo sapiens took over and uh, yeah destroyed uh, all the other human human uh, beings, uh, human breeds here, human kinds on, on on the globe. Before Homo sapiens showed up, um, the lives of uh, members of of uh, the kind of human of the genus human. Um, had looked pretty much the same for more than a million years, and they did pretty much the same. Um, they used the same kind of uh, stone tools, so there, there was not too much change happening in that side. They were living in uh, comparably small groups, 30 to 50 beings, and um, yeah, just like like uh, packs uh, or groups in in, uh, in the animal kingdom, and that changed radically and in the dimensions of the evolution abruptly when what uh, Yuval Noah Harari calls the, the cognitive, revolution, uh, cognitive revolution occurred. Those of you knowing me a bit better know that um, I really like the way of thinking of, of Harari. He, 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 for me, is one of the big um, understanders, philosophists, um, historians um, that we have on this globe. What happened in this, what he calls the cognitive revolution, is that the brain of Homo sapiens changed significantly in a very short time frame. It is, a, from an evolutionary point of view, a very short period of time. It became considerably more complex, the became bigger, significantly bigger, and language emerged. Suddenly, those beings were able to exchange on a very complex level. And they were able to, to also talk about fictional things from that point in time. We, we know that animals can communicate on a level like, hey, there is the tiger coming, let's all get up on the trees. Or insects uh, can communicate and say, hey, there, there is a nice lawn with beautiful uh, flowers on it, let's fly there. On that level, it's no problem. But suddenly, with the um, ability of complex language, humans were able to talk about things like, hey, let's meet at the next full moon, and uh, let's meet down there at the river and uh, at, at sunrise, and we will hunt the mammoth together. Right? I mean, that, that was suddenly possible and groups could become larger and, and with this communication you suddenly could build imaginary things and you could build trust between different groups and all that changed life and the way we see humans radically how exactly the cognitive revolution happened is not clear probably it was less like a coincidence or some say it was an accident a Certain genetic mutation rewired the brain, rewired the connections in the brain of Homo sapiens. And yeah, suddenly he was able to think and speak in a completely different and far more complex way. 
And in essence, we still, you and me, everybody here on this globe, um, has this millennia-old structure in his or her head. And it is, it is uh, very well designed to live in an environment we had, uh, let's say, 10, 12,000 years ago. That, that is the situation or the environment um, the human brain is made for. And we use the same brain to drive uh, 250 kilometers per hour on German autobahns and play with a smartphone at the same time. And this shows basically two things. One is the flexibility of the brain. So we use this Stone Age hunters and collectors infrastructure to live our lives today. And the other one is that we meet surprising bottlenecks in the human brain. Surprising things where we say, hey, this, this, this cannot be true. This, this is totally irrational. And the fact is that with the, this Stone Age brain, we are meeting today's world. And we, we constantly create a new environment with our brains. And then we expose ourselves right into it and i mean this this pays my bills and this is how i run my business the the gap that we have between the world our brains have created that we create with using our brains uh, on one side and the abilities of this stone age the millennia old structure that we carry around in our heads And we think today we understand the human brain. And I mean, we have learned a lot. We know what happens in many cases, how information is forwarded, how it is transmitted or how it is blocked. We know how drugs work because most of them change the communication between the individual neurons in our brains. We know which functions are mapped where in the brain. For example, the seeing is in, in, in the back of our heads, the hearing is located over our ears, the consciousness is in the, in the front part of the head, and our reflexes are in the lower parts of the brain. So we have a rough landscape uh, on what is where located in the brain, and we have a pretty good idea of how it works. To give you a picture of what the human brain is, I mean, we have... 100 billion cells in our heads. And each of these cells has 10,000, roughly 10,000 contacts with others of these cells. And this is like, imagine you have about 12 to 15 times the world population. And everybody is sitting around with a smartphone. And on this smartphone, on each smartphone, is a list with 10,000 contacts. And everyone out of this population, 12 to 15 times larger than the world population we have today, is communicating with these 10,000 contacts at the same time. This is roughly how our brain is structured. And I don't want to offend neurologists or brain researchers, but um, the idea we have of how it really functions is pretty superficial. It is like 
flying in an airplane at 30,000 feet above Europe. And you see Lake Constance is here to the right, and up there is Berlin, and uh, on the left side there's Paris. And that, that's the picture that we have of the brain. We have a pretty good idea of the structure, and uh, well, maybe we even see uh, trains and streets and, and cars driving on it. That's what we have from the view from the aircraft. But we don't understand the political decision-making in financial policies of the European Union. That's not what we know. And this is what we do not know about the brain. So our understanding of the brain is concepts, is missing concepts like self, like me, like perceiving ourselves, like consciousness, like, like soul. We don't have any idea of how this, this will work. Um, I mean, with this stimulus response analysis, we have come very, very far. We have gone a long way and we know a lot. But the higher things, they are still beyond our understanding. And the brain has always been compared to the most current, to the latest technology available. So sometimes it was seen as some kind of clock, sometimes as a steam engine. And today... We compare our brains to computers. So computers are the most advanced technology that we have today. And so we say, okay, the brain works like a computer. And somehow it seems obvious that, that it is like this. So we have the long-term memory that is like a hard drive. We have the short-term memory that is like a main or working memory. We have the various senses we see things, and that could be the mouse or the keyboard. We hear things, and uh, then we have various outputs, like things we do with our hand, or I'm using my voice at the moment to talk to you. So this could be like screens or loudspeakers and whatever. So there are certain commonalities, but um, to be honest, nothing could be more wrong. So the human brain is definitely not a computer. A couple of examples on this one. So imagine you have a new computer. You have a fresh computer. It is new. The, the hard disk uh, is empty. And there's a bit of software on it. And you start working with it. And everything works fine. And then you start creating a couple of documents. And then you copy some music on it. Some pictures. And maybe some videos. And the hard drive, the hard disk is getting fuller and fuller and fuller. And then... The moment in time comes that is so full that your computer gets slower and slower and slower. And if the hard disk is full, nothing works. An old friend of mine, we went uh, to high school together. Uh, he is a genius in, in learning languages. He knows a dozen languages, including Hindi, Thai, Chinese, Japanese, Finnish, and he's speaking all these languages more or less fluently. And he himself says, um, the more languages I learn, the easier it is for me to learn a new language. And this is the way that the brain works. So we, we do not know any limits and capacity of the human brain. It's more like the contrary. The more we use our brain, the more knowledge we put into it, the easier it gets. So if you know 
a dozen languages, it's super easy for you to learn number 13, 14, and 15. The more I learn, the easier it is to learn new things. And the other way around, if I don't use my brain, it becomes more and more difficult to learn new things. So the brain is more like a muscle. If you don't use it, you lose it. And the brain is constantly forming new structures. It's creating new connections between these 100 billion cells that we have in there, the neurons. So your brain will be different after this podcast because you have learned something, you have heard something, and it will be different than it was before. I am creating new connections in your brain right now. I am changing your neuronal structures. And that, by the way, works until very old age. So the, the idea is the older you get, the more difficult it becomes to learn new things. And oh, I'm so old, I cannot learn it. Nope, completely wrong. It's the contrary. The more you learn, the more you do until old age, the easier it is for you to learn new things. You adapt to new situations. And you have this there's connections in your brain and, and if you don't use them, they become like thin, like tiny paths. And if you start using them, if you learn things, if you challenge them, they turn into super highways of information processing. And this can happen all time in your life until the very end. In computers, the hardware is in an optimal way, optimal uh, situation is not changing by use. If it changes, it gets worse. It doesn't get any better. You can use your computer, your computer hardware, as long as you want. It will not get any better. It will remain the same. One more example. Um, after the failure of uh, individual areas, for example, after accidents, if parts of the brain are hurt, or after strokes, um, you, you, you have dysfunctional parts of the brain. And very often other areas of the brain take over the functions that are not performed correctly anymore. And that is, again, not possible with computers. If something is broken in a computer, it is broken. So, the brain is not a computer. The brain, the human brain, is super unique. And the question at the end remains whether we will ever understand the human brain with the human brain. Or do we need an even more complex, even more higher structure to understand the human brain? And how does this structure look like? Where will it come from? And will we understand this structure with our human brains? For me, the biggest questions in philosophy, some of the biggest questions in philosophy, and I want to leave you with those. Quick summary. The human brain is not a computer. If you use it, you make it better, not worse. The human brain doesn't know any limits in capacity. And it is extremely flexible. 
So the human brain is not a computer. The human brain is and remains a miracle. Quick remark at the end. I'm always appreciating feedback on my podcast. So don't hesitate to write me an email. For example, on a podcast at beyond-hmi.de and give me your input. What are things that you would like to hear about, uh, things that you would like me to talk about? Let me know your thoughts and how I can improve the Human Technology Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for spending time with me. I hope you were able to take something with you and do something for yourself that will be forever. For an ongoing exchange, you will find me on LinkedIn and on my websites, peter-rusker.com and beyond-hmi.de. Write me an email on the podcast at beyond-hmi.de. Tune in next time. Take care and stay healthy.